Welcome to Stitch Disc with Corey Bradford, a podcast from Lost Debate. And this is a show all about TikTok and the most interesting creators on there. I'm Corey Bradford, also known as at This Is Corey on TikTok. And as a film school major and aspiring screenwriter, I absolutely love classic Hollywood films and classic television from the mid 20th century. It's like my favorite thing ever. But sometimes I think we forget just how problematic some of the greatest films and TV shows really were and still are. And though a lot of that content was displayed in the grayscale look that we refer to as black and white, there is a ton of color behind these productions that seldom gets mentioned. And that is where my guest today steps in. My guest is a singer, social commentator, and podcaster who uses TikTok to teach about a number of things regarding race, politics, and social justice. But her page also focuses a lot on classic Hollywood, classic American television. And at times she breaks down how race has played a complex role in popular American media. You know, there's someone I think we tend to overlook as an essential player in the black experience, really in the culture at large since the mid 1980s. Stop it! Yeah, him, Arsenio Hall. I'm Dara Star Tucker, and this is The Breakdown. Please welcome to the show, Dara Star Tucker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Corey. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. That's a lovely synopsis. Thank you. Oh, well, well thank you. <laughs> I've been a fan of your page for a couple of months now. Actually, I think I started following you before you started following me. Really? Yeah, and um, I believe it was it was um, one of your videos where you broke down just the history and the background of Sesame oh, Street. Yeah. Uh, I love that video because I have a two-year-old son oh. and he loves Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw that, I, I didn't know a lot of that history. I watched it a little bit growing up, but it is a, it's an older show at this point. And so um, I, I love that video. And I remember just you had an instant follow for me right <laughs> after that point. And uh, I've been following you ever since. And I know we, we follow each other on there now. And so I'm so glad you were able to come here and do this. With yeah, me. absolutely. I love I love your work. I'm really just kind of getting acclimated to it. It has been, you know, not a very long time that I've followed you. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I've, I've done a little bit of a, you know, uh, of, a, of a study of what you do and just the knowledge and the depth that you bring to like historical subjects. And like you're so so raw, so edgy, just like, man, this stuff is so educational, but I wonder if teachers get frustrated. because They man, get very frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> that is my biggest complaint. They're like, you know, Corey, you're so smart, but you know, I can't show this can't to my show students. This to and students. I'm like, well, you know, a lot of history you wouldn't be able to show to the students right. if, they, if they filmed it live. Right. Um, but, uh, but one of the first things I want to talk to you about is um, you seem very media trained. Like you, you're super articulate. Your videos are very high production value. Oh, so I'm wondering, you. do you have like a background in like communications or like filmmaking? Like, do you have any background in that? I study, I got like half of a master's degree, I will say, in mass media communications. So okay. I, I wanted to study journalism. I, I cannot say that I learned how to do anything that I do from that that time studying mass media com. Really? I'm mostly just a student of media. That's, you know, that's that's my background. I've always loved classic film and television. I've always kind of studied media and how it works. And, you know, media literacy is just such an interesting subject to me. And so, yeah, I, I guess I can technically say that I have a bit of training in that, but it was just so fun. We were reading Heidegger and, you know, studying yeah. about freaking you know, <laughs> yeah. hegemony and, and all of this stuff. So, yeah. you know, I don't I don't know that I learned a ton about what I actually do, the on the ground part of what I do yeah. um, through that. But yeah, I have a little bit of training, I would say. Yeah, I mean, and I would totally attest to that. Like I'm, I'm a film school graduate. I, I went to film school, but I've learned probably more about movies and television, just watching them mm -hmm. and reading about them right. and like just actually attempting to try to make small stuff myself than actually what I learned in, in school. Yeah. All I, those student I, loans. And, and <laughs> Right. I always wanted to go to film school. That was my dream to go to UCLA yeah. or NYU or something, film school. But, you know, that never happened as a younger person. And that, you know, it was 
a whole, almost like a deviation in my earlier life. And mm -hmm. then I just had to kind of come back to what really inspires and motivates me, which is what a lot of what I'm doing now. Well, that's really cool. So let's talk a little bit about how you got started on TikTok. Were you doing the videos, like the, the breakdown videos you do? Were you doing stuff like that before you got on TikTok? No, I wasn't. Well, you know what I was doing, what I was doing, because I always had an interest in documentary. Mm -hmm. And so what I was doing, I lived in Nashville before I moved to New York. This has been, we moved to New York a couple years ago, right before the pandemic started. So what I was doing was I was just getting my, I would uh, take my camera, I had a Canon 7D, I think at that time. Nice. Uh, I was kind of older, so yeah. the, the nice quality, camera. yeah, the quality wasn't great, okay. but you know, I was you working with what with I had, that. right. Yeah. And I was, um, I'm, I'm a musician, I'm a singer, as you said in the intro. And so I was, I would just go uh, find my friends, musicians, and I would tell stories. I would do like five to seven minutes, like, you know, vignettes or whatever yeah. about them and their lives. And I would just like, let me follow you around for a day. And then let's, let me interview you and let's kind of talk about what you do. And so it was called Music City Select. So all of those are up on YouTube and it was just profiles of, yeah. of my musician friends. And that was, that was really my, my entree into this whole world of storytelling and, and, and mini kind of mini documentary filming. Yeah. Oh, I can totally tell. Like when I watch your stuff on TikTok, it really does feel like I'm watching a, a full-fledged documentary, <laughs> right. even though it's like in a short form. Right. Like, like a, again, just such high quality Thank production you. value. Thank you so much. That's my aspiration. I mean, I've, I've been able to upgrade some equipment. Someone called, a couple of people have called them TikTokumentaries, which I oh, think there is you a go. really, yeah, it's <laughs> kind of a really cool, like a portmanteau. But yeah, that's that's my desire. And I don't know, you know, if it may expand into something more, mm -hmm. but that's that's kind of what I aim to do is tell, you know, just provide little little mini documentaries, yeah. you know, that, that tell a complete story. Yeah. So what got you started on like TikTok? What attracted you to that app specifically? Um, you know what? I have been working on on learning how to build an audience, learning how to build, you know, how to connect with people. And this has been an aspiration of mine for a while. I did a vlog for like 30 days at the end of 2019 mm -hmm. on YouTube. And I'm just like, what is this? You know, I, I need to master this. I need to figure out how to connect with my people. They are out there mm -hmm. and I'm not sure quite what the medium is. I don't know yet. And so I normally would just be putting music up there and the music stuff would do okay, you know, especially amongst people who know me and already support the music, but it just never really seemed to take off. And I looked at my husband uh, early 2020 and I'm like, my audience is out there, I'm going to find them. I don't know how. And I would watch creators like, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with like Kev on Stage. Yeah, and, Kev on Stage, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tony Baker is mm -hmm. another favorite um, creator of mine. And then a guy named Terrell Grice, who does a show where he interviews musicians, mostly like gospel and R&B musicians. Mm -hmm. And just kind of watching the way that they built their platforms and just they're creating these little mini empires, really. Kev on Stage is like building a oh, studio yeah. and he's got an app now and I'm just like, there's, there is something in this world for me, and I've never been afraid of the online space. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people who are my age are just like, eh, you know, I don't need social media. And they're, you know, just very leery of it. But I'm like, no, this is great. It's a great tool. And I've always been curious about it, but I've never really known how to make that connection. And so I, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we first moved to New York, um, I looked at my husband, I'm like, okay, everything's going indoors. We cannot tour anymore. And we're shutting down. So we've got to figure out how to be completely proficient at what we do within the confines of our home, of our apartment. So I'm like, we upgraded our camera equipment. I got a teleprompter, you know, got some lighting. I We really made some investments at mm -hmm. the beginning of the pandemic. 
And I just started doing little skits, you know, and I, and I do little comedy stuff. I haven't done a ton of it lately, yeah. but that's another thing that I do. And so I just nice. would drag him into these skits and start <laughs> doing, you know, comedy stuff. And then when the election happened and all of that crazy stuff started popping off, it was like, you know, I was just like a bubbling cauldron. I just had so much to say. And I thought, man, I just keep seeing these TikTok videos that keep coming through my feet. You know, every, anything funny I'm seeing on Instagram has got the little TikTok watermark. Yeah. yeah on it, there's something that's happening over there. So I'm like, let me try this. I had put one video up there at the end of 2019. It didn't do anything. It was just me, me you know, vocalizing with someone mm -hmm. and um, just decided to kind of fool around. I'm like, I don't, nobody knows me over there. And that's actually perfect. There's yeah. no family, there's no friends. I can experiment and I can play. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I started doing. I started doing little satirical pieces. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing I did. It mm -hmm. wasn't any explainers or anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, got, you know, a fair amount of attention. It wasn't really anything to to remark about. But, you know, when the when it turned around and of course January sixth happened and seven, it was like, all right, there's no need for me to be silent anymore. This is not serving my silence is not serving anyone. It's not serving me, it's not serving anyone. So I decided to start speaking out and just kind of talking about the history of race and culture in America. And that was, you know, my first entree into that that world. And it's just kind of burgeoned out since then. So that's very interesting. I think we have a very similar story in that case. Like I, the same way I, I saw TikTok it kept coming through my Instagram right. feed and I was like, what is this? And my, my brother kept saying, you're a funny guy. You should get on there. And same as you, I just started doing these little skits, started putting stuff out there and slowly kind of found my niche. And it was almost like serendipitous. I started like I did a history based skit just for fun. And that just got like a million views. Wow. And I was like, well, maybe I should do that again. And uh -huh. then eventually that's how my page kind of turned into this history page. And do you feel like that's kind of what happened? with your TikTok, do you feel like you were doing one thing, but then you like tried maybe the mini documentary stuff and then you just saw this huge reaction? Right, my first video was actually, it's so funny that we're on, we're, we're on Mulberry Street. My first video was about Dr. Seuss, my first oh. explainer type video. Dr. Seuss was racist. Now hear me out, I learned how to read from Dr. Seuss, from Green Eggs and Ham, so I could not be a bigger fan, but it's true, he was. There was a whole series of cartoons that he drew early on in his career that employed the worst stereotypes about black people and Asians. And even in some of the books that we know and love, like And to Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street, and If I Ran a Zoo, you'll find some really insulting racial stereotypes. It was like February of 2021. Okay. And it was about Dr. Seuss and kind of his history of racism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was my first one, you know, uh, explainer video to mm -hmm. do really well. I had done some other kind of satirical stuff mm -hmm. or commentary about, you know, Trump and w whatever, mm -hmm. January 6th, but that one really blew up and it was like, oh, this is what people want to see me do. Yeah. And I still have a conflict sometimes where I'm like, you know, why do people prefer that type of thing for me? Because I do a lot of things. I sing, I'm on there doing, you know, funny stuff, comedic mm -hmm. sketches, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of commenting about this and that. But for some reason, me looking directly at the camera and saying, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I think. This is how I feel. People respond to that. And, yeah. and so I have to, you know, you got to kind of just follow the leading of what people are actually responding to. Yeah, TikTok is, is interesting like that. People will kind of tell you what they want right. based off the responses <laughs> right. to your videos. And I'm the same way. Like sometimes I get tired of history. It's like, I just want to do a, a comedic skit right. that's not history related. And every time I try that, they're like, no, go right. back to history. We, right. we, we, we only want to see that. Yeah. And so it's kind of frustrating sometimes, but at the same time, when you do give them what they came there for, the, I mean, the, it's just an immediate response right. of, of overwhelming, like that's what we want. Yeah. You know? And it is interesting that it works like that. So how long did it take for your 
page to really blow up? Because you're you're up there now. You're over seven hundred thousand. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did it take you to start seeing those like hundred thousand follower numbers? From the time I really started posting in earnest, I would say that was November of twenty twenty, mm-hmm. um, right around the election time. Uh, to probably February of 2021. So I don't know how many months that is. Uh, December, January, February, you know, three or four months. Yeah, Yeah, about three or four months until it, you know, till I figured out mm-hmm. what it was that people wanted. Mm-hmm. And then the the Aunt Jemima video, which was really the one that blew up to like, that was like 19 million. I had I have oh, not wow. experienced anything like that even since. Aunt Jemima does not belong on the front of a pancake box. But why should you care? She's a respectable black lady. You even heard that she became wealthy and her family loved that she was on that box and was super disappointed when she was taken off, right? Wrong. There is no such person as Aunt Jemima. That name was taken from a minstrel character from the 1850s. The name itself is a colloquialization of Aunt Jemima because she took care of white people's children. That's amazing. But that was like March mm-hmm. of 2021. Okay. So probably for, you know, maybe four months yeah. before I figured it out. And it's, in- it's incredible that it doesn't take that long. Like if on YouTube, it could take a person years, years to build yes. that kind of audience. I'm working on that now. Right, yeah, yeah, same here. And and But but TikTok, is, it's not quite instant, but it's almost instant. Yes. The way you can build an audience. On yeah, it felt like so forever fast. at the time. And mm-hmm. I was just like, mm-hmm. oh my God, looking at all these large creators and I'm like, I'm not, you know, why is what I'm doing not connecting in the way that, you know, what they're doing is connecting. Mm-hmm. But once you find kind of that thing, like you said, that people respond to, then, you know, you've, it's like hitting a gusher, yeah. you know, you know yeah. that you've, you've, you've landed at that spot and you just, you know, kind of hang out there as much as, as you possibly can. Absolutely. So now I want to talk to you a little bit about some of my favorite videos of yours that I've seen on TikTok. And one of the first ones, uh, we've talked a little bit about Sesame Street, but I saw a video you posted recently and I didn't know anything about this. It was about a man named Matt Robinson and he created a character for Sesame Street named Roosevelt Franklin. Unless you're part of that first generation of Sesame Street viewers, you may not remember a character named Roosevelt Franklin, who was created and voiced by the show's first permanent actor to play the Gordon role, Matt Robinson. He's Holly Robinson Pete's dad. Roosevelt Franklin and his classroom of cohorts were introduced to represent the black and brown inner city children that the show was specifically created to reach. Now, me being as young as I am, I'm from the 90s, so I knew nothing of this character, and that video blew me away that that, that those types of representations were on Sesame Street, but it was it was so interesting. So break down just a little bit about like that character, what he represented and and just like the role that played in the early days of Sesame Street. Well, yeah, it was really it was a really interesting story um, to to learn about um, that Matt Robinson, who was brought on in the early days of, you know, 1969 is when Sesame Street first started. It Mm -hmm. started, you know, it was one of the first shows that the um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting put out. Um, and you know they were specifically targeting black and brown children, mm-hmm. and so they brought him on. Uh, he was a, a broadcaster in Philadelphia, and they brought him on specifically for the purpose of being someone who was, you know, who was he was black. He was on the ground. He knew what was going on within the community, and they wanted him to, you know, provide some substantiation, you know, and legitimacy for what they were doing. It was a bunch of, you know, hippies and and scholars and academics and stuff that started it. Mm-hmm. But they're like, hey, we need some black folks to participate in this because, you know, we're that, targeting black that was kids. The demographic. Yeah. So Matt Robinson was he was that guy, and they kind of you know, convinced him to play this role of Gordon, mm-hmm. which he he didn't even really want to be on the air. But yeah, he brought in this 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 Muppet. Uh, he developed this Muppet with Jim Henson mm-hmm. um, called Roosevelt Franklin that was supposed to represent kind of inner city kids. Mm-hmm. And he would preside over a classroom and he would teach them, you know, lessons about history and culture and 
you know, all kinds of things. Uh, but, it, you know, they were rowdy, a rowdy group of kids. And it was supposed to look like an inner city school. Yeah. That's what he wanted it to look like. But parents got upset and they complained, you know, black parents. Yeah. Got that's, upset what I and found, that's what I found so interesting. Like it was actually black parents and black families who looked at that and said, this is stereotypical. Right. And it kind of reminds me of like, uh, I, I grew up watching Good Times. Yeah. And I always remember the JJ character. Right. And I just remember, all, I, I remember not having a problem with it when I was young, but I do remember as I, I got older, I was kind of like, this is, yeah. you know, this is a little, you know, it kind of hits <laughs> a certain kind of way sometimes when you watch it. But then I always think there's this interesting argument of there are a lot of people in inner city black communities that talk like that, that mm -hmm. walk like that, that act like that. Is that such a bad thing to portray the reality of these communities? Right. I mean, you know, you had the the advent of of black exploitation films that was happening at, at the same, same time. time. And I think it was probably the confluence of like so much of that kind of entertainment. And then you have to question, you know, why is this the thing that everybody wants to see? Yeah. You know, that's it's a good just point. it's it's just everywhere after a point. And so, you know, I, I tried to present that story in a in a sympathetic way, you know, mm -hmm. to those parents who express concern because it's like, man, this is 1969. This is a year after after uh, MLK yeah. was assassinated, mm -hmm. and and they had to have been, you know, just just disheartened to the point of of um, probably hopelessness, mm -hmm. really. And it's like, hey, we need some heroes. We need some folks out there who are showing us what what we can be and what we can do. So, you know, I can imagine as yeah. a parent, just like, hey, why why are you broadcasting this? Yeah. You know, why why this? Yeah. You know, I like I saw one of the letters that one of the parents wrote that they showed uh, in this documentary called Street Gang on HBO, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. um, one of the parents said, yes, I want black representation. I want to see young black kids, but I don't want to see these kids. Wow. You know, which is really it's kind of, you know, it's it's sad. It's 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 kind of leaves you leaves you feeling a little bit um, conflicted because yeah. it's like, well, why don't those those kids deserve to be represented exactly. yeah you know it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a tough one it's yeah, not it a is, straightforward story it is tough because I, I totally understand their concern they want their children to see a more upstanding version right. of themselves but at the same time you know we shouldn't be ashamed of right. who we are right. you know and, and certain representations of who we are so it is it is a very conflicted thing and i feel like that has a lot to do with this shift like if you look at black television in the 70s versus black television in the 80s mm -hmm. it's like night and day right. like looking at good times versus the cosby <laughs> right. show two totally <laughs> different representations right. of, of black america right oh yeah absolutely and obviously well i i asked one person or i asked um my um audience on tiktok in my comment section at one point I was like, is it possible that the Cosby show might not have happened if good times if that didn't happen in yes, the first place? If you, all of those shows hadn't happened that's a good point. because the Cosby show was was very much a reaction yes. against a lot of that, of you know, a lot of the, the, the shuck and jive, you know, uh, of the Norman Lear shows. So, yeah, there's a stark contrast. Yes. You know. Speaking of Norman Lear, that's the next thing I want to ask you about, because I grew up I grew up in the 90s, but I grew up kind of an old soul. I always gravitated towards older television shows. So I grew up watching all the 70s, Jefferson's Good Times, even on the family, which which always kind of struck me as very odd that that even got made. But right. it was <laughs> but, <laughs> but 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 still it was interesting because I'm, I'm into history. So from a political standpoint, it was very interesting, like just hearing people talk like that. But you did a, a video. You've done several videos about a writer from the 70s named Eric Monte. Norman Lear is a racist, a hypocrite, a thief, and a liar. This is a man named Eric Monte. He was one of the creators and writers of the Norman Lear show Good Times back in the 70s. He says Norman Lear never properly paid him for his work in creating the show 
and that Lear has wrongfully claimed credit for creating a number of shows that were based on characters or ideas that Eric came up with. He created a lot of these ideas that Norman Lear had, uh, such as basically creating the parents for Mike Evans' character on All the Family that ended up being the Jeffersons, mm -hmm. uh, creating, um, basically giving Norman Lear the idea to do a remake of a British show that would end up basically becoming Sanford and Son. Mm -hmm. And so talk to me a little bit about how did you discover his story? Well, you know, that was a funny kind of circuitous situation. Because of the the, the Dr. Seuss video, I had mm -hmm. reposted that maybe six months ago. And anytime, you know, that video goes up, it's gone up a couple times. Mm -hmm. And there's always people in the comment section, usually a bunch of young folks in the comment section, like, oh, this was the, this was just how it was at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a product of, of his time. You're judging him by 2022 standards. And, you know, this is, this is not really relevant to this age why are we going back and judging historical figures mm -hmm. you know by the standards or the ethics of the modern age they were all racist it was a comment That's, i heard mm -hmm. over and over and over again and mm -hmm. i'm like so i did a response video to that you know to one of these many people that made that comment oh all older people at that time were racist and i did a video like hey here's a list of 10 um older white people in media who were not racist. We had people like Betty White, yep. Carol Burnett, mm -hmm. Dick Van Dyke, mm -hmm. and I included Norman Lear in that list. Interesting. Unfortunately, <laughs> I included him in that list. And I really have no ultimate judgments about Norman mm -hmm. Lear's, you know, racism. I allowed Eric Monte to say what he said in the mm -hmm. video, but you know, someone said, hey, you know, you might want to look into that because Norman Lear, there's accusations that he stole a bunch of his his work from a black writer, from a black creator. I was like, oh, my God, I have heard that. Mm -hmm. I heard mm -hmm. that at one point. I mm -hmm. sort of dismissed it, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And I was like, OK, let me go back and 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 check that. And that's when I decided to go look up the, the uh, Eric Monte interviews mm -hmm. on YouTube. And there are a couple of them. And so I, I took my video down. I'm just like, oh, God, you know, I've done a disservice to this man. You know, it's time for me to really. Um, investigate and and really understand for myself what really went on. So mm -hmm. it took me forever to do it. Yeah. Um, but we we did some touring a little earlier, um, I mean, a couple months ago. And then when I came back from that tour, I was like, the whole time I was on that tour, I'm like, when I get back, it's time to do Eric Monte and Matt Robinson. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that was my goal is just to, you know, to hunker down and force myself to get into that story. And so I did. And, you know, my goal was just to allow him to express what he felt. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I got some flack from both sides. It was like, you know, a lot of black folks were in the comments just like, well, why didn't you believe him? You said you were skeptical. Why were you skeptical? I'm like, I'm skeptical because those types of accusations fly around Hollywood all the, all the time. time. All the time. Yeah. If you know anything about film, television, you know, anyone that's connected to Saturday Night Live, somebody's been, you know, yelling in their ear about this idea or that idea and mm -hmm. they stole this from me. You hear this stuff constantly. So it's like. Yeah, I, there was some skepticism there. Um, and, and frankly, there still is for me. Mm -hmm. There's still a little bit of skepticism. I don't know um, how, I don't know if there are exaggerations, as I said at the yeah, end of the you story. Said that. You said I that. don't know, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I try to make room for that. Mm -hmm. I have not heard, you know, Eric, uh, Norman Lear has made um, one comment about it. He's mm -hmm. just like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that uh, Eric Monte is homeless. You know, he was always his own worst enemy or something like that. Oh, wow. and, you know, he's, uh, you know, sabotaged himself or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, so I don't know what the full truth of it is, mm -hmm. but I felt like his story, mm -hmm. his version of his story mm -hmm. deserved to be heard. And there is clearly 
some truth to it. Yeah. If he won a lawsuit, yeah. you know, for a million dollars against mm-hmm. Norman Lear, there's some truth there. Yeah, yeah. Norman Lear wanted to settle out of court and right. just give him the million dollars to keep him quiet. Right. And and obviously his work on Good Times shows that he had some history with Norman oh, Lear yeah. prior to that. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely there's definitely a history there. Uh yeah, I wish I wish we could get more of Norman Lear's perspective. I mean he's like ninety nine right. years old <laughs> now. He's still living, but I don't think he probably even remembers most right. of like what happened in the least times. of his concerns. I'm yeah, sure. at least of his concerns being yeah. ninety nine. But yeah, it would be interesting to get that that other perspective of but I, I just thought it was a really interesting series because I, I grew up watching all those shows and one thing that you kind of touched on was this idea of when I watched those shows I was always into the idea of who made them so I would look mm. at the names at the end of like Sanford and Stun and Good Times and I'd be like mm. you know there's, there's a lot of white guys right. and Jewish guys right. writing these right. shows right. and I'm like well how do they know mm-hmm. you know so much because a lot of it was very because you know my parents are from the 70s my grandparents they were all around that age so like I had a lot of aunts and uncles from that time period so a lot of these shows really did reflect the way they dressed the way they uh-huh. talked the way they acted and so I was always curious like how do these guys know and I knew that there had to be some black people in right. the writers room right. that was giving them insight into these communities because everything was still very segregated in that time even yeah. in the 70s things oh, were still yeah. very segregated very much so yeah I think Michael Evans who as you said played the son on the Jeffersons eventually, eventually. who started out he was really Norman Lear's first um, one of his first black characters he was the first black character mm-hmm. um, on All in the all Family, the family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, between him and Eric Monte, that really was, as far as I know, the only black representation that was in the writer's, in room, writer's room for Good Time mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah. Um, so th- they did eventually end up allowing the cast to make some input, mm-hmm. you know, into into how these shows were written and how they were created. But there was a lot of just a lot of you hear all of the cast members talk about it. There was a lot of contention behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. About how these, these characters would be depicted. Yeah. I you mean, know? John Amos eventually left. Right. Good times. Over right. Just he was not, fired. Yeah, yeah. Fired over that just because he was just like, I, I don't want to do like, what are you guys doing? Like, Why are you writing these 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 scenarios that are clearly stereotypical? Right. You know? Right. So, yeah. There's a lot that goes on there. Um, now, you recently had a video that went viral on TikTok, and I think this was literally within like the last week or so, um, about blackface scenes yes. in old Hollywood movies and why you believe they should be left in. Yes. Um, and I think one of the movies you referenced, if I'm not mistaken, it was, uh, was it Holiday Inn? Blackface scenes should never be cut out of movies or television shows. A few years ago at Christmas time, I sat down to watch a film on Turner Classic Movies called Holiday Inn with my younger sister. What I didn't realize is that the version of the film that I had seen on TV back in the day was censored. My sister and I got partway into the movie and we were hit upside the head with this. Our jaws were on the floor. I was so embarrassed that I had suggested that we watch this movie. I had no idea that musical number was in the film in the first place. Now, it was so interesting about this is that one of my coworkers was actually had the exact same situation as you. Like they watched that movie mm-hmm. uh, with their with their family over the holidays and they had never seen yeah. the blackface stuff because it had always been taken out. And I guess they saw it like on TCM like you did and they were just like, uh, you know, couldn't <laughs> right. believe it. And so talk to me a little bit about your rationale for why you feel like those things should be left in. Because I saw there was a lot of back and forth on, on that particular video. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's 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 very interesting because, yeah, it's kind of depending on the angle that you look at it from. You could, you know, you could assess that in, in two very different ways. Mm-hmm. And where, yeah, where I land is leave it in because there is a there there's context there that was kind of the point i was making in the video there's context there you know these are familiar people like mm-hmm. judy garland being crosby fred astaire and then we have to sort of grapple with why these these kind of wholesome middle america you know middle american figures are doing this yeah then that leads possibly to some conversations that are necessary mm-hmm. and it, it causes people to come face to face with their perception about what America really was, Mm -hmm. you know, and subsequently what America is. What is the foundation, you know, that this country has been built on? 
it's possible for it to lead to some fruitful, fruitful conversations. And I had some black folks push back and say, hey, you know, maybe yeah, there's a lot of white folks that just enjoy this. Maybe they're just getting off on it and they yeah. think it's great. It's like, well, we can't do anything about those people. If they think it's great, their children probably don't. And their grandchildren certainly Definitely don't think won't. that it's great. Yeah. You know, it, it looks odd, you know, mm -hmm. in the rearview mirror. There's, there's an oddity to it. Um, versus Aunt Jemima, Mm -hmm. You know, where a lot of people still are commenting, well, I thought that, you know, she was just a lovely woman. I thought she made the syrup. <laughs> you know, she was a wealthy woman who created this. They know nothing about this character. Yeah. You know, it teaches nothing to have this um, mammy stereotype on a syrup bottle. It teaches us nothing to see a Confederate statue in, you know, in, in a state capitol building. It teaches nothing. That's the question is, is there a sense of contrition or embarrassment or dare I say shame that would be attached, you know, to presenting this. What's what is the context? Yeah. And, you know, for for those those uh those films and those television shows, I had a lot of people ask about contemporary shows mm -hmm. where they're still doing this stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, is should it should it be be left in the contemporary shows? And and the answer for me is yes. Leave it in. Put a disclaimer or better yet, an apology mm -hmm. at the front mm -hmm. of the thing and let it run. Cause removing it only protects the creators. Yeah, I actually absolutely agree with that because it is all about context because I saw your comparison to the Anjamima, you know, bottles where in that particular case, these people didn't know that woman's real name. They didn't mm -hmm. know her story, her legacy. It was a caricature that represented uh, an ugly part of our history yes. in America yes. versus a movie where then it's like you said, you have to then face it. You have to then ask yourself, why is Bing Crosby right. one of the greatest American <laughs> filmmakers and singers of all time or, or actors and singers of all time? Why is he doing this? Right, you know, you, right. then you have to confront the whole practice itself right. and why it was so popular with not just, you know, people on the sidelines, but some of the most, you know, legendary and beloved right. Hollywood legends of all time. And right. so that's, I, yeah. I do agree with and, that. And you have to start questioning what what the history is what is the lineage the lineage mm -hmm. is vaudeville vaudeville yep. and before that the lineage is minstrelsy mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so there's a through line that connects all of this stuff and that's a lot of that's a lot of my motivation for a lot of the content that i create whatever it is if it's historical if it's media related whatever it's like let's show the through line let's show that where we are today is very much connected to where we were, even you know, as far back as the Civil War, we're still having the same conversations. Absolutely, we're still fighting a lot of the same fights. This is not disconnected in any way. Absolutely. Now, you do a lot of other content about classic Hollywood that isn't as as contentious as some of that. Right. Uh, like, for instance, you did a really great breakdown of The Sound of Music. Uh, I thought that was great. Uh, would you say that's like your favorite movie from that era? Or oh, one of your definitely favorites? one of mine. It's, it's top five. It's top, top five. five for me. Yeah. And you're going to be shocked at, at another one that's in my top five. And that is Gone with the Wind. That's one really? of my top five films. Yeah. I saw your video where you talked about the uh, the most po uh, like the highest grossing films yes. like over time. And yes. of course, Gone with the Wind for a long time held that record. I think um, almost, I think until Sound of 25. Movies. Yeah. It yeah. was, it was a long time. Yeah. It was a yeah. long time. Now I, I've watched that movie. I mean, I watched it even before I went to film school, but I watched it in film school and you, and you would still consider that a great movie. I mean, I know people have problems with, you know, the representations of some of the things in, in that particular film, but I mean, that film did result in the first African-American winning an Oscar. Uh, I mean, and, and just from a filmmaking standpoint, just, just a brilliant, yes. brilliantly, you know, wonderfully that, made from movie. that perspective alone, <laughs> it is in my top five. I think it's just it's a it's a brilliant film. It's one of the most deeply affecting, moving films that I have ever seen, mm -hmm. and it's also uh, em embarrassingly racist and promotes lost cause ideologies. Yes. It is both. Yes, it is both. And I, I really want to do a video 
that addresses that. Like, yeah. hey, I mean, even a video that addresses what it's like to be a classic film lover as a black person. That's like we're constantly having to step over landmines. Absolutely. You know, that's it's just such a process of just tap dancing over so much and ignoring so much or or grappling with it. And mm. there are times where I just I won't even watch certain films because it's like I just don't even want to have to put myself through that right now. Yeah. You know? It's so odd because there's so many, even if you get into more modern films, even even, even The Godfather has racism in it. I mean, yeah. there's the Pulp Fiction has racism mm -hmm. in it. I mean, you can go through even more recent films. And I was talking about that with somebody the other day. It's like, you know, we as African-Americans, we have to watch these movies. I'm a huge fan of, of Tarantino. I'm a huge fan of The Godfather. I like these movies. I like Scorsese movies. There's a lot of racism in yes, Scorsese movies. Like yes, a lot. Is. And it's almost, and some of it almost seems unnecessary. Like yeah. it doesn't, it's not just move. It's like one thing, okay, if it's like a racist character, that's a part of the plot. But a lot of it's just a like casual racism yes. that's just kind of thrown in there for no real reason. For no other, reason. You know, other than just be there. <laughs> and so, you, and you have to grapple as a, as a person who loves film and loves cinema, you have to grapple with, well, I like this work, mm -hmm. but I still have to deal with that as a black person yeah. that, that that's in there. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's very odd. And I think it would be great for you to, to tackle that in your. In yeah. Your, in you, your but picture. you know, I'm going to get torn up in the comments. <laughs> I mean, folks like to come after you. I mean, it doesn't, if you're expressing an opinion, they're going to come after you yeah. anyway. Yeah. Anyway. But that's, that's been part of my, you know, part of, part of what I have embraced is just like be comfortable with it all. My my own uh, podcast is called I'm All Over the Place. I yeah. have to embrace it all. I have to mm -hmm. be comfortable with the fact that who I am and a lot of the things that I'm into and interested in, you know, for the people that love the content on race and culture that I yeah, do, yeah. they're going to kind of cringe a little bit mm -hmm. at some of the content around film and, and music and television that I do. Because it's like, my, you know, that mid-century stuff, as you were saying, uh, media, television, film, from from the and music, mm -hmm. from the middle of the century, mm -hmm. that is, that's where I live. That's yeah. my home yeah. base. Yeah. So I, I have to be comfortable with that and, mm -hmm. and not shove it under the rug. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to, you know, as my series is called, The Breakdown, break it down and analyze it and deconstruct it. And mm -hmm. let's figure out, you know, what all of this, you know, what this mosaic is made up of. And let's grapple with with what it means to really be, you know, an American. That's really a black American, really. It's like we we do not have the luxury of spitting out um, every anything that we don't like, because, you know, for all of the film and the cinema that's in, that's impacted you. Mm -hmm. If you were like, I'm going to avoid every racist moment, what, I mean, how much media would you even be able to consume? There's not a lot I would be able to watch. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Like my favorite film directors, there's very little I'd be able to watch. Right. Very, very little. Right. Uh, I mean, you put that in a great way and you talk about your podcast, uh, I'm All Over the Place. And I thought that's a great way to describe your TikTok page because it, yes, really it really is all over the place. Really you have is. a lot of different content other than just the, the classic Hollywood stuff. How long have you been doing that podcast? Not long. We just put out our sixth episode. I think today actually it hit. Oh, wow. Um, so not very long. It's been maybe, and I, I'm so not consistent. I'm not regular with it. I said I was going to do it like every other Wednesday or something. Um, and I'm going to try to get more consistent about it. But yeah. it's been maybe, I'd say, three months maybe that we've been doing it. And on that podcast, do you stick with like the type of content you do on TikTok? Or do you just kind of have like more random conversations? Yeah, I try to. Uh, the, the pattern that I've been following recently, which I feel like has been working fairly well for us, is I'll find a video. Like if a video does really well, like the one on blackface mm -hmm. that did really well, then we'll use that as a launching point. And I do that with my husband, Greg Bryant. Mm -hmm. And we'll have conversations about it. Just like do the deep dive. Mm -hmm. All the stuff that I didn't, the nuances that I didn't get to get into and, you know, kind of sparring off of him and, and really getting into kind of the nitty gritty of whatever it is. And then we'll sometimes talk about current events or, you know, uh, shows that we've gone to and how certain artists have impacted us. But yeah, a lot of it's based on the content that I do, you know, in my videos. 
get back getting back to TikTok a little bit, you know, I get this a lot. I mean, I just turned 30 recently and I'm on TikTok. And sometimes when I tell people, yeah, I have a popular TikTok page, they look at me and they're like, you're a grown man. Like, what do you, <laughs> what do you do? Isn't that just for, for teens and kids who are dancing? So what kind of reactions do you get from some of your friends and family when you tell them that you have a successful TikTok it's page? It's just kind of bl a blank stare, I think. <laughs> they don't like to be, you know, People don't like to be mean about it or rude about it, but I think they just don't understand. Don't it. It's just yeah. like, whoa, okay, what is that supposed to mean? If you tell them what your follower count is or they find out what your follower count is, because a lot of them, if they go over there and they end up running into, into my stuff, yeah. it's like, I saw your thing. And then they understand and then it clicks then it if clicks. they can actually see it. But yeah, that perception that it's a dancing app and that it's just this fly by night thing that's gonna be here today and gone tomorrow. Um, you know, half of half of the people, you know, the older people in my life, they haven't even latched on to Instagram. Yeah. So they really yeah. are so, just like, well, you know, I don't know what you're doing over there, but you know, <laughs> bless you. Um, but I've started to work on growing my Instagram presence as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm really kind of trying to dig into YouTube, yeah. which is a whole other thing. So, you know, slowly but surely I'm, I'm working on trying to make it relevant and I'm, I'm getting a little less shy about putting it up on my Facebook professional page as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, getting a little less shy about sharing, you know, what I do everywhere. Cause TikTok, like I said, has been a haven of, of like, I don't know these people, yeah, you know, this is not friends and family. So yeah. now, friends and family are starting to see what I do. And yeah, uh, yeah the TikTok thing just said, like you said, it's it's blank stare. You know, <laughs> they they don't know what to do with that. But so, talk to me a little bit about your relationship with the app, as far as like, like, do you ever have to deal with? Because I've dealt with this a little bit, not as much lately. Like videos getting taken down, videos getting reported. Like, like, is that something you deal with a lot with your content? No, I don't, and I'm really thankful about it. The most that I've had to deal with is like, and it's hard to do content around music. I am a musician, yeah. and that's one of my favorite things to talk about. But I don't do as many music. Um, uh, stories as I want to do mm -hmm. because I'm constantly running into the challenge of like copyright stuff. Oh, yeah. So that's the big thing. And I, you know, the worst experience that I had was when I put out, and you probably haven't seen it if you've only been following me for a few months, but mm -hmm. one of my biggest videos mm -hmm. hit like th three and a half million or something like that, yeah. was a video about Martha Wash of CNC Music Factory. You see the woman singing? She's a model turned singer named Zelma Davis. And this right here is the Miller Vanilli. The song's real singer is named Martha Wash. That whole story, it's still up on my YouTube, mm -hmm. but it was taken down from TikTok and Instagram because the guy from CNC Music Factory reported it to uh, Warner Music. He did not want this video up. Really? He was very upset. Yeah, that wow. I even talked about this story. He contacted me through Facebook and was just very angry. Wow, yeah, directly, we, contacted yes, you directly. We went back and forth for days about this. And he finally was like, I'm calling my lawyer. He finally just had Warner call and just uh, get get a copyright strike against it. What, what was his biggest beef with it? He, just... didn't, he didn't like the fact that I was saying that he did not use Martha Wash, who sang oh, everybody yeah. dance. Not in the video. Yes, yes, he didn't like the fact that mm -hmm. I said mm -hmm. this was because of her weight, mm -hmm. which you know has always been the contention. Any kind of media that's out there about about it, mm -hmm. this has been the accusation. So mm -hmm. I'm just telling the story as it's been told in the media. He he did not like that, even though he essentially admitted that that was true wow. in our conversation. But yeah, wow. that's that's the worst 
situation that I have I've ever encountered on yeah. TikTok. But I have not really had to deal with like mass reporting. And, yeah, you know, I'm sure people have tried, but it's yeah, never really no, your works. content's pretty straightforward. I don't yeah. think you would have to deal with that too much. And you give credit a lot too yeah. whenever you're using copyrighted to. material. So yeah, I really try to. Yeah, but that that is crazy. And that remind that just that story just reminds me of the video I just saw from you recently about the the jazz albums. Black artists were sometimes left off of their own album covers because it was thought that if a black person were on the cover, white audiences might not buy the music, particularly white southern audiences. They would often use artwork or scenery and in some cases attractive white women or couples particularly in the jazz arena. And, yes. and how they would, these would be like Miles Davis and they yes. would put like, like some random white woman, white woman on, on the cover. The cover. <laughs> we had nothing to do with the, the album right. and just to try to sell it and it's like right. and Miles Davis is like, what are you guys doing? Like this is why? Like that's right. crazy. That is yeah, crazy. Yeah, that, that was an interesting little story. It was one of my little mini ones yeah. um, to tell but yeah, that's it was an interesting practice. I mean they did it with Nat Cole and yeah. Cannonball Adderley and, and just so many artists and you really think about it it's just like oh there's a pretty pretty white woman on yeah. the cover but then you don't think about the why yeah like the what, like what was the it. relevancy of the, of right. the, to the to the music right. yeah that's really interesting so if there's one thing you would change about tiktok what, what would it be like is there one thing that about the app it could be like a technical thing it could be like a cultural thing is there one thing about the app that just kind of gets on your nerves that like i would change this if i had the ability to oh what an interesting question um you know we always as creators we always want more of our content to be seen by the people that actually follow us but TikTok is such a it's it's a con it's an app that's set up for virality mm -hmm. because they are so interested in just showing you know the most interesting content to everyone. So that's the reason that so many people have been exposed to my content because they weren't showing someone else's content to those people. Someone else that those people followed is not getting a view because I put out something that's more interesting. So, you know, you live by the algorithm, you die by the algorithm and you just, you know, blessed be the algorithm. Yeah. You really have to, you have to embrace it. it the algorithm <laughs> controls everything on right, TikTok. Right, you have to embrace it. And I really use that as a feeder app at this point. Mm -hmm. um, they kicked me out of the creator's fund. I do not know why that happened really? over a year ago. Yes, I left it. They will not let me re-enter it. We, we wow. can't evaluate your application, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no customer service through TikTok. Oh, Nothing, there's none of that. Nothing. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So, you know, you have to understand what you're getting into. That's what I would tell people. If they're, you know, first starting out, understand what you're getting into. It's not, you know, there to, to cradle you or anything. Use it for what it's there for, which is to get eyeballs mm -hmm. on your content mm -hmm. and to feed, you know, users to other apps or other things that you want them to engage with. Yeah. Um, but TikTok in, its, in and of itself, I don't know that the platform itself has done a whole lot for me. Yeah. Um, and I've gotten a couple, you know, a few little sponsorship brand yeah. deals type stuff. Yeah. Nothing to write home about. <laughs> but stuff, you know, some a couple of things that are pretty cool. I've done, you know, did one thing with HBO and have done oh, you know, a really couple cool. of yeah, yeah, a couple of other little things like that. So it's good for what it is. And it's bragging rights. Yeah. You know, the yeah. numbers always the look numbers. really good. Yeah, the numbers are the right. biggest thing with TikTok. The yeah, numbers. but uh, but I mean using it, you know, I've done a, a couple of fundraising campaigns. That's nice. that's the coolest thing. Yeah, I saw the one you did for Eric Montez. Yeah. I saw that, that yeah, we've good. raised thirty thousand dollars for Eric Monte. Wow. You know, he was he was uh, he's destitute at this point. Yeah, yeah, you know, so homeless, for homeless, a while. drug yeah. addicted, all mm -hmm. of those things. And so we're working on getting him into housing. So mm -hmm. TikTok is it's like use TikTok for you know whatever you can get out of it, use it for that. Mm -hmm. But you know, don't don't put your heart and your soul in into it because yeah. it will break your heart. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I tell people that all the time. Like people think this is a quick way to fame, and it's like no, this this app does not care about you. It and really does. They're not going to give you any money. Right. Like, like when I first started getting like millions of views on TikTok, people would see it and they'd be like, so how much do you get paid for right. that? And I was like. 
paid right <laughs> like what are, you, what are you talking about like and and just like with you this app has exposed me to people have seen my work and that's the whole reason i'm in new york right now is because right. my producer now exactly. saw my work on tiktok and was like and took me out of alabama wow. and like plunged me in new york city that is the coolest thing yeah and so that's the cool thing about tiktok is the eyeballs the yes. numbers people seeing your work seeing yes. your value and that's the biggest thing you're gonna get out of it yeah because beyond that you know yeah. there's not and a whole I, much of that even else, the, else the other there. cool thing for me about tiktok is being able to interact you know, with different celebrities and stuff that find me. There's there's so many people that I respect and admire yeah. that have actually found me and that follow me. I've had inbox conversations with NDRE and this is on Instagram oh, wow. because of what I'm doing on TikTok. That's awesome. People like Layla Hathaway have been reaching out. Holly Robinson Pete contacted yeah. me about her dad. Yeah, yeah that was her dad. Yeah. 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 And Mar Marnie Nixon, who was like a, a voiceover mm -hmm. artist. I saw that video. Yeah. Her children and grandchildren reached out. Wow. Like Arsenio Hall, I did a video on him. Yeah. He reached out and wow. you know, it's like people, That's I'm awesome. like, this these are videos I'm doing in my living room. Are you are you kidding me? <laughs> Why do these people care about any of this? But that's that's the coolest part about it is like when the subject of your video or their family mm -hmm. can come around, you know, Eric Monte's daughters, I've been talking mm -hmm. to him and granddaughter mm -hmm. can come and be like, thank you so much for doing what you did to mm -hmm. honor our family member. That is like the most unexpected and coolest thing that has that has come from what I do. Wow, that's amazing. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I, I do a lot of history videos, so I don't think the Kennedys are gonna like come talk to me about <laughs> what, I, what I, I don't think Abraham Lincoln's grandson, <laughs> great, great, great grandson is gonna talk to me, but right. you never know. So the, the last thing I always wanna ask people on this podcast is, is kind of a, a two-part question. First, what do you want to get the most out of doing TikTok videos? And second, what do you want people to get the most out of watching your TikToks? Oh, those are very, very good questions. What do I want to get out of TikTok? I, as I said before, my primary goal is audience building. Mm -hmm. Because I am um, an entertainer, I am a, a creative person already. So it's like getting, building my, there is no downside to audience building. And I keep saying this to myself, keep saying it to my husband. I'm like, even though what I'm blowing up for is not music, mm -hmm. people, you know, there will still be way more people who will have their eyeballs on our music and their ears on our music than there ever would have been if I hadn't been doing this. So audience building, funneling that audience to other platforms. Now I'm laser focused on YouTube where I can really start to work on on making a living and developing, you know, a real presence that's going to, you know, allow allow some real substantial income for me. So the best thing that TikTok can do for me is just to give me eyeballs on my stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, what do I hope that other people get from from what I do? I hope to to create, um, I hope to bring wisdom and understanding, knowledge, information that helps people to better understand why we are where we are, you know, to help helps people to better understand the culture, helps them to better understand their place in the culture and helps them to be more empathetic to those who may not have what they have, you know, to helps them to be better citizens. Well, that is great. Dara Star Tucker, you have some incredible content. Thank you, Corey. Likewise, I'm just so honored to be here. I'm well, really honored to be here because I really, really respect what you do. Well, thank you. And, and it is the feeling is mutual. Like I said, very high quality. I learned so much from it. If you guys are listening, go follow her, Dara Star Tucker on TikTok. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking. Thank you, Corey.
Next week on Stitch Disc with Corey Bradford, I'll be sitting down with my good friend Donna, who is known on TikTok as at Donna underscore UTMB, and her page is all about immigration, what it's like to immigrate to America, the immigration process, and her personal experience as an immigrant in the United States. Because in college, on the maternity leave is like three years. Whoa, whoa wait. Wait a minute. Yeah. This, you get how long for maternity leave? Three years. Three years. Three years. Not three, three months. Years. Three years. Over here is three months. One year's paid. <laughs> what? In Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan. Is- Thanks for listening. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and we'll see you all next time.